Rebecca Sherrick has a rare condition that few people in the world have. In fact, only 80 people worldwide have what she has, which is known as superior autobiographical memory. She can remember things as far back as when she was 12 days old. When she was one and two years old, she started to read the Atlas and she was able to cite from memory every country's capital. As an avid Harry Potter fan, she read all seven, seven books and she can recite each one of them word for word. She says that her memory is not photographic in any way. She just can remember long sequences in great detail. She says her memory is a blessing and a curse. She can remember her favorite Christmas as well as her favorite Easter, but she can also remember some of her greatest childhood hurts. And she says in those moments, her memory is so intense that the pain returns again as if it's brand new and if it's fresh. Would you like to be Rebecca? Do you want her memory? Some of us think that our memory sometimes is better than it really is. We say, I'm going into the room to get this. And before we know it, we have to sort of backpedal out of the room and regather our thoughts to see why we went in in the first place. Or Or we go to the grocery store and we say, I don't need a list. And we find ourselves coming out with not only several things that we didn't need, but very much so without the thing that we went into the store to get from the get go. There are some things we can forget and there are some things that we must remember. And God wants us to remember some things. When you turn your Bible to the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews was written to Christians who were suffering. As these Christians are suffering, the Hebrew writer encourages them in several places to hold fast. Hebrews 3 and verse 6, Hebrews 10 and verse 22, and Hebrews 10 and verse 35. They're to hold fast to the things that they had initially received. In a letter that reads more like a sermon than an epistle, he encourages these individuals who seem to have some sort of draw toward the Old Testament law system and the Old Testament way of worship. And he's saying to them, in Christ, we have a better and more enduring way. And so for about 11 or 12 chapters, he writes to them about the lofty high priesthood that is Jesus's and that Jesus is the new and improved Melchizedek. And he's God's last spokesman and the Forgiveness of sins that we enjoy in the new covenant is far superior to that which we find in the new is far superior to that which we find in the old. And he talks about Jesus being greater than Moses and Joshua. And he gives a list of individuals like Abraham and Moses who are great, faithful Old Testament examples. And as you march through the book of Hebrews, it seems like you're either in a graduate level Bible class or in a school of preaching class because of all of the information that he organizes and packs in. But lest we nod off. And think that the book of Hebrews is really about theological jargon. When you get to chapter 13, he brings the message home to where we live. These Christians needed to be reminded about some foundational things that that they had believed. And the Hebrew writer was encouraging readers then and now to do two things. The Bible is about being studied, but also getting the Bible lived and making sure what these Christians knew came out in the way that they lived. And so when you turn your Bible to Hebrews chapter 13, what you find him doing in the last chapter is talking to them about brotherly love and about marriage and about prison ministry and about the truth and how they respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Though they know these things, how is it supposed to impact the way that they treat each other? We need to be reminded These Christians needed to be. And no matter how how well we think we know these things, we all need to be regularly and habitually reminded about some of these things that the Hebrew writer closes this epistle with. 
He writes to them to say, Jesus is a great and enduring high priest and your sins are forgiven in Christ. But none of that really means anything if it just stays up here and it doesn't get lived out. And so in the first 10 verses that make up Hebrews chapter 13, he challenges us right where we live. The Hebrew writer gets practical and he says, you should be changed people because of the message you've received. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers because thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Remember those in prison as if you're bound with them and those who are mistreated because you also are in the body. Let marriage be held on marriage bed be undefiled because adulterers and the sexually immoral God will judge. Let your heart be free from the love of money. And be content with such things as you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you so that we may confidently say the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your rulers who have taught you the word of God and consider the outcome of their lives and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever. Don't be led away with strange and diverse teachings. It's good if your hearts are established with grace and not with foods that have not profited those that have devoted themselves to such things. He wants us to hold fast to the truth that we've received and not to compromise it. And so this morning, here are six righteous reminders that every one of us must take to heart and live out in our lives as a result of the new covenant of Jesus Christ. Here's number one. Let brotherly love continue. Number one, he says, remember to love one another. Now, the Hebrew writer begins this chapter with several imperatives, these commands, these exhortations. And appreciate that in verse one, he just assumes that love is already taking place among the Christians. He doesn't say, hey, you guys should love one another. Now, that's found in other places throughout the New Testament. But here what we have is a reminder, an encouragement to persist in that which should already be taking place. And so he says, let brotherly love continue or let brotherly love remain. We talk about Philadelphia as the city of brotherly love, and we talk about it because that's exactly what this Greek word means, brotherly love. The Greek term is Philadelphia, and it's about this familial relationship that Christians enjoy, and as a result of that, we need to love one another. In 1 Peter 3, in verse 8, Peter says, I want you all to be of one accord and one mind, have sympathy and compassionate hearts, and then Peter adds in this one, and brotherly love one with another. You could imagine these Christians who were being persecuted for their faith and that were tempted to turn back to that Old Testament system. And Jesus said in Matthew 24 and in verse 12, because lawlessness would abound, the love of many would grow cold. And sometimes in life when we're agitated and when we're frustrated and when things aren't going our way, we're tempted to lash out or to be short or to be cold toward the people closest to us. And the Hebrew writer says to people that are in that circumstance, you don't get to do that. The brotherly love that you began with, it must remain. Because even among Christians, our love is not automatic. The love that we don't work at, the love that we don't develop will eventually disappear. And so he says, I want you to hold fast to it. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 9 and 10, Paul says to the Thessalonians, I don't need to remind you to love one another. You yourselves are taught of God to love one another. And this you do to all of the saints that are in and around Macedonia. But I'm writing to you to encourage you to continue to abound in these things and do it more and more. And that's the admonition from the writer of the book of Hebrews. You know, Jesus said his disciples would be known by this. By this will all men know you're my disciples if you have love one toward another. John 13, 34 and 35. We might read Hebrews 13 and verse one and read our titles clear and say, well, look, I'm doing pretty good. I don't hate any of my brethren. And that's great. But he says more than that. Haddon Robinson said that you could distill the core of your spiritual life down to three questions. Question number one, do you love God? 
Question number two, do you love your brethren? And question number three, do you mind if I ask them? Because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what we think we are. It doesn't matter who we say we are. It's what we're doing for other people. And so first Peter two in verse 17, Peter says, love the brotherhood, love one another. It has to be active. It can't just be something that we know and no one else knows. Let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in action. First John three and verse 18, let brotherly love remain. Let it be steadfast and let it continue. And perhaps just like someone going to the grocery store without a list who thinks they'll have a ready recollection in the time they need it most. We might live our entire Christian lives and say, you know what? I've got to worship God. I've got to pray. I need to read the Bible. And all of those things are true. And we might forget that one of the most important things on the list is to love one another. The whole law can be summed up in this one commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Galatians five and verse 14. What if someone was spying church at Lehman Avenue? Offer it to give a million dollars to the Christian among us who showed the most love. Would you win the million dollars? Somebody said, if I knew there was a competition, I would start, right? (laughs) Would you be in the top three? The reality is there is someone who is spying on the church and what he promises to offer is far greater than any monetary reward we could receive. Jesus says, I want you all to love one another. Practically, what does this look like? It looks like this getting to know people that you don't know, that you don't talk to normally in the assembly, talking to one another, but doing more listening than talking, learning other individual stories among us so that our love can grow and foster and flourish, because that's what God wants for his people. Seeing where other individuals in the body of Christ are hurting and then saying to yourself, now, what can I do to enter into their suffering and to help them? Let brotherly love continue. Don't forget it, he says, because you just might. Now, here's number two. Not only must we let brotherly love continue, but in the second place, he says, remember to show hospitality to strangers. Hebrews 13 and verse two often gets a lot of mileage and sometimes for the wrong reason. But he says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers because thereby many have entertained angels unaware. And he's going back to the Old Testament. And there are at least several different occasions that he may have in mind. He may be speaking about Abraham in Genesis 18, one through eight. When the angels came to Abraham and they visited him and he had Sarah whip them up a meal or maybe as lot in Genesis 19, who does almost the same identical thing. And then there's Gideon in Judges 6 and Manoah in Judges 13. His point is not that if we show hospitality to strangers, we may meet an angel. He draws on this being the experience of Old Testament faithful and Old Testament patriarchs to say this in summary. When you show hospitality, good things happen. Do not neglect to show hospitality because in doing so, some individuals in the past, that Hebrews 11, that long list of faithful individuals that he mentioned who all lived out their lives by faith. He said some of them did this same thing and their lives were blessed. And they're this great cloud of witnesses. Hebrews 12 and verse one who encourage you and me to do likewise. And so show hospitality. Now, what is hospitality? It really means to show love and kindness and generosity towards strangers. First Peter four and verse nine says, show hospitality without grudging. And every time I read that verse, I think about this story about a young boy and his mother. They were cooking up a meal to have individuals over after worship service. And everybody gets to the house after they've made this meal. And mom calls on the son and says, Johnny, would you lead us in a prayer? Johnny says, I don't know how to pray. Mom says, you do know how to pray. Just say something you've heard me say. And he says, "Okay, God, our father in heaven. Why do we have to invite all of these people here on this hot day? hospitality without grudging. Don't complain about it. Do it because you want to. And from the heart, Christians did this in the first century. 
And third John, John writes to a man named Gaius. And he says in third John, verse five, you, beloved, do whatever you do for the brethren faithfully. And you receive them on their travels who have gone forth for the sake of the name. In Romans 12, as Paul details what he calls the transformed life or the life of a living sacrifice. In Romans 12, 13, he says, distribute to the needs of the saints and allow yourself to be given over to hospitality. In our culture, sometimes we talk about southern hospitality, but hospitality, biblically speaking, does not belong to the south. It belongs to the saved and Christians in every region need to be doing this. And maybe after we've come through a year of social distancing, we need a double dose of this reminder. This goes back to the Old Testament. Leviticus 19:34. God told them through through the law of Moses, you receive the stranger, receive the orphan and you do good and be kind to them. Our society often has this in reverse. Our society says, now, you don't welcome strangers. You don't know them. You don't know what they'll do to you. And yes, Christians must be both wise and cautious. But we should give pause to that type of admonition. The world says, don't widen your circle. You never know what people are going to bring in. If you let more people in, you don't know what's going to happen. But would you see how countercultural Hebrews 13 and verse 2 is? The Bible says the exact opposite. The Bible says you need to widen and broaden your circle because you don't know what might happen. Jesus often talked about hospitality. He challenged people at the core. In Luke 14, verses 12 and 14, he says, now, when you have a feast, don't invite your friends and your loved ones who can then pay you back. Because then you have your reward. But you go out and find the lame, the crippled, the blind and those that can't do good to you in return. And then you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the just. The parable of the Good Samaritan is about love and it's about compassion. But it is also a crash course in hospitality as that man saw how he might be able to help another. It just might help us in this regard if we viewed hospitality as a blessing. What might happen if we had our homes flooded occasionally with non-Christians and they got to see how we live beyond the scheduled times? And as we showed hospitality among each other and we got to forge deeper bonds with each other in Christ. Our homes are not our own. You know, many of the first century churches worshiped in homes. And I find it interesting that even while they worshiped in their homes, they needed this reminder Because it's tempting to view our stuff as our stuff. But we're really just stewards over what God has blessed us with. And many people in this auditorium have already done that. When you think about grub nights and other things that individuals at the Lehman Avenue family have done to say, we want to open our home and use it to host other individuals and to have events. I'm just saying to us that we need to delve further into this and see how we can do it better. The Hebrew writer says, don't forget to do this. We might have a lot of excuses. You know, I don't have this at my house and my house doesn't have this. Remember, hospitality is not about what's on the table, but who's at the table. Hospitality is about saying, I want you in my life. I'm welcoming you in and I want to share that with you. It's not merely about having people over in our homes. But next Sunday for Plumful Sunday, we have a great opportunity to show congregational hospitality to strangers. Individuals are going to be visiting us. And what if we said to someone, sit by me? And what if we had at the fellowship meal somebody to talk to who is not a regular visitor here? We just might make somebody's day. Perhaps we might even make their year. Finding Dory. She's the blue regal tang fish in the movie that has a short term memory. She can't remember anything. As soon as she hears something, it just escapes her mind automatically. Her parents were se- she was separated from her parents very early on in life and she forgot that. But then in the movie, she realizes that, you know what? My family is somewhere out there and I've lost them. 
She initially has some bad ideas about why they've been separated, but then it all starts to come back to her. She struggles throughout the movie to retain memories, to retain things. And maybe the longer we've been in Christ, we've forgotten how strange and how difficult and how hard it is to come into an assembly like this one where you don't know anybody where you're not a Christian, where you haven't sung the songs your whole life, where nobody else in the world is welcoming you in. And we've forgotten what it's like to be an outsider. The Hebrew writer says if anybody in the world should be welcoming in the strangers, it should be the Christians. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers because you just might win a brother or a sister. Now, here's number three. The Hebrew writer says, remember those who are suffering. If you look at verse three, there are two categories of people that the Hebrew writer says that we need to remember. Remember those that are in prison as if you were bound with them and those that are being mistreated because you yourselves are also in the body. In the first century, the prisons were not necessarily for sentencing like we might think about prisons in our law system today. The prisons were often a holding cell until the verdict was laid down on the individual that was incarcerated in the Roman world. Prison was where you were held until the verdict was pronounced. You were either put to death or you were released. But in the meantime, as an individual was in prison, he could have friends and loved ones bring him things and come to visit him. And so Paul says in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 13 to Timothy, bring me the books and the cloak that I left at Troas. I need those materials to study. Paul could have individuals visit him. The Hebrew writer says, remember people like that. And then the second category of individuals would be those that are suffering. And this could be any type of mistreatment. It's not specific, but the point is other individuals are suffering. And the Hebrews had done this before. If you look at chapter 10 and verse 34 of Hebrews, it says that they remembered those individuals who were in prison. But as they suffered more and as they went through more difficulty, it might be tempting to say, you know what? I've got problems of my own. Do you ever feel like that? And I really am at a season of life right now where I don't have a lot to give out. I've got to be taking care of me and mine. I don't have time to serve and help others. And he says, remember those in prison as if you yourself were bound with them. It's saddening to read that of all the preaching Paul did in and around the Roman Empire, that he could write these words in Second Timothy four and verse 11. Only Luke is with me. All of the hardship Paul had suffered, all of the help that he had given to others in his greatest hour of need. He was abandoned. Second Timothy one and verse 15. Paul spent his longest amount of ministry time that we know of in and around Asia. He was there for three years preaching. But in Second Timothy one fifteen, he says, all of those in Asia have turned away from me. What a shame to only use people when we need them and to forget them when they need us the most. Remember those in prison and those that are suffering. Paul did have some loyal companions. He sometimes writes about people like Onesiphorus in 2 Timothy 1, 16 and 18. He says, Timothy, when I was in prison, this man sought me out very diligently. It was not ashamed of my chains. When I was in Rome, he found me. And how many things he ministered in Ephesus, you know very well. There are some individuals that are just drawn to the sufferer. And Christianity calls for us, yes, to tend to our own weaknesses and our own shortcomings. But we must also learn to enter the suffering of others and make it our own. Romans 12, 15 says, rejoice with those that do rejoice and weep with those that weep. And some of us are better at the one than at the other. The Bible says we have to do both. Remember those that are suffering. Don't forget them. We might read this and we might think, well, in our country, at least now, no one's being in prison for their faith. And we're thankful for that. But aren't there others who are suffering in many different ways? Can you think about people that it might be easy for us to forget? Think about widows and orphans. James 1:27 says that pure and undefiled religion is to see about those individuals. 
or maybe those that have chronic pain and illness. Philippians 2 talks about a man named Epaphroditus who suffered greatly for the cause of Christ. And we might forget they've been on the prayer list for so long. They just kind of filter to the back of our minds. Think about people suffering with anxiety and depression. Second Corinthians seven, verse five. Paul said that he and his companions went to Macedonia and without they were fighting. But within there were fears. That means that everybody that looks bold and courageous on the outside is not always that. Maybe they're suffering silently within. Don't forget them. Maybe somebody's a single parent and they're doing all that they can. They're struggling, but they need help. And maybe there are other individuals that are married. And in their marriages, there's a hardship that's pressing on them. The Hebrew writer says to these Christians, get outside of yourself and find out how you might be able to help someone else. Remember those that are suffering. Notice the end of this verse. He says, and those suffering because you are in the body with them. This is not about being in the body of Christ. He's saying you are also in your physical tent. You haven't escaped to eternity yet. And you may very well find yourself in their circumstances in time to come. And so think about other individuals and minister to them the same care you want. Job was a wealthy man, a spiritual man, a righteous man. But in Job 19 and verse 14, he said, my family and my friends have abandoned me. His breath was strange to his wife. None of his servants came when he called. He forgot those that were suffering. And Christians are called to remember. Here's number four. Remember to honor marriage. Let marriage be held in honor among all and the marriage bed undefiled, but the sexually immoral and the adulterers. God will judge. You wouldn't expect to find a practical statement like Hebrews 13, 4 in the book of Hebrews. Again, it's filled with lofty doctrine. But the Hebrew writer doesn't want us to forget that Christianity is about where we live. We need to know all of the spiritual realities and truths. We need to know the difference between the Old and the New Testament. But we also need to see how that changes the way that we live. And he gets to marriage and he says, let marriage be held in honor among all. Hebrews 13, 4 is not for only it's not only for individuals who are married. It's for everybody. If anybody in the world should honor marriage, it should be Christians. It's the first institution that God gave in Genesis 2, 18 through 25. It's the relationship that God chooses to say that the church and Christ are relating to one another in this very way. Ephesians 5, 22 through 25. And we're to hold it in honor, to highly esteem it, to value it. We live in a culture right now that's trying to do everything it can to turn that upside down. And Christians, whether you're married or not, the Bible says the way we should view marriage is we should honor it and hold it in high esteem. And then remember that the marriage bed is to remain undefiled because God will judge the sexually immoral. The world says it's my body. I can do whatever I want and there are no consequences. The Hebrew writer says God will judge. Do we honor our marriages? Do we honor our own marriage? Do you care if your marriage survives or if it thrives, if it reflects the glory that God would have it to? Neil preached a few weeks ago from Colossians 3, and Paul says that wives are to submit to their husbands as is fitting in the Lord, and husbands are not to be harsh to their wives or bitter toward them. Is that true about us? You know, our world often says that certain people can engage in unions that God says can't and they want to disrespect and disregard marriage. And we say, hold on, that's unscriptural and that's right. But low quality marriage among God's people is also unscriptural marriage. When husbands are not loving their wives, when wives are not lovingly submitting and serving together and being faithful toward one another. Bowling Green State University put out a study in 2017 and they titled it the the gray divorce rate in the United States. 
And here's what they found. They said, you know what? In our country right now, the divorce rates are dropping. People are staying together longer, except for those individuals that are 50 years old and older. From 1990 to the present, those individuals in that age range, they said the divorce rate has doubled. That's surprising. You might think that individuals in that category would sort of be coasting in, that they'd be far beyond any talk of divorce or separation. But the statistics say otherwise. Hebrews 13, 4 does not mean if you're a divorced person that you're a bad Christian or that you're unloved by God. It just means that we always need this reminder. We need to hold our marriages up with high regard and respect and refuse to compromise. For those that do fall in this area, there is forgiveness, there is pardon. But we should warn individuals of the harsh consequences of doing the very things that the Hebrew writer says will bring on judgment. Hebrews 6.18 says, flee fornication. Every sin that a man does is outside of his own body. But he that commits fornication sins against his own body. Hold marriage in honor. Remember to esteem marriage in a world that says it really doesn't matter if you're married at all. We need to do this with our lips, but also with our lives. Because this is what we're called to do as God's people. Here's number five. Remember to learn contentment. In verse five, he says, and let your heart be free from the old King James has covetousness or love of money. For God has said, I'll never leave you nor abandon you. Then we can confidently say the Lord is my helper. I won't fear. What will man do to me? These Christians have been persecuted. They had their goods plundered. They suffered greatly. And now he says, amidst all of these other things, remember to learn contentment and contentment is learned. Paul says in Philippians 4, 11 down through 13, I've learned in whatever state I am therewith to be content. I know how to be abased and to abound everywhere. I'm instructed both to be in need and to be hungry. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. How did Paul get to that point? God took him on a crash course through the school of hard knocks. And Paul learned, I don't need as much as I thought I did. I can be content. Aren't you surprised in Hebrews 13 that he doesn't say, let your heart be free from love of money because God has given you all of these blessings. He doesn't say that, does he? He says, let your heart be free from a love of money and be content with such things as you have. And the next statement, you would think it'd be about material possessions, but it's not. He says something about God's presence, because until God's presence is enough for us, his presence and his gifts never will be. Be content with what you have, who you have. God says, I'll do you one better than stuff. I'll give you something more abiding. Something more enduring. I'll give you myself. He'll never leave you nor abandon you. In the Greek, these are five negatives. God is saying in Hebrews 13 and verse 5, I will never, ever, 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 ever leave you or desert you. I won't abandon you. I won't leave you. I'm with you. And whether you have a lot or a little, you can count on this one thing. I'm with you always until the end of the age. Matthew 28 and verse 20. The passage he cites is Deuteronomy 31 and verse 6, and it's reiterated to Joshua in Joshua 1 and verse 9. As Israel was heading in through the wilderness and into Canaan, they needed to remember they didn't have the biggest army. They didn't have the most advanced technological weaponry. They just had the greatest God that the ancient Near East had ever known, and that was enough. And the Hebrew writer says to people that are suffering, that are losing their stuff, remember, you still have God. Learn contentment. Learn that it's not about what we have. It's about who we have. Isaiah 41 and verse 10. God says, do not be afraid nor be dismayed. I'm your God. I will be with you. And that changes how we view material things. They're not evil, but they're merely tools to accomplish God's will on earth. Are you content with what you have? Are you satisfied with what God has given you? Jesus says we should be. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives two reasons not to worry about material things. 
In Matthew 6, 25 through 34, Jesus says in the first place, don't worry about material things because there's not much that you can control. You can't turn one of your hairs white or black. I know some of us wish we could. He says you can't add a day to your life or shorten it. You can't do anything about it. That's number one. But number two, don't worry about material things because God has never let you down. Psalm 37 and verse 25, David says, I've been young and now I'm old. I've never seen the righteous abandoned or his seed begging for bread. Psalm 73 and verse 25, Asaph says, what have I in heaven beside you and who do I desire on earth beside you? You are my portion and my lot. He's saying, God, you're enough for me. And that removes fear. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Nothing. Because God's going to be with me. The Hebrew writer is writing to us. He's saying, I want you to learn to be content in a world that's in a rat race for more stuff. Get God. And if you receive God and if you have his presence, that'll satisfy you. Can you imagine a kid going to Disney World with their grandparents and getting to the gate and being frustrated and angry because they left their twelve dollars in their piggy bank back at the house? And they don't know what they're going to do. Well, first of all, they're with their grandparents. Right. And so they're going to have their needs far more supplied than they ever could. They're with somebody who's going to care for them. And furthermore, they're with somebody who has far more resources than they ever could have to dispose on themselves. The Hebrew writer says, let your heart be free from covetousness and a love of things. You have God. And God says, I own the cattle on a thousand hills. Psalm 50 and verse 10. If I was hungry, I wouldn't tell you. God has all things at his disposal. So what that says to us about our material lot is this. If we've done our part then wherever we are in life right now is evidently where God wants us. And that has to be enough for us because God knows best. Learn contentment or otherwise our love for things will eventually outrun our love for God and it'll ruin us. Here's the last one the Hebrew writer gives us. He says, remember the truth. In verses seven through ten, the Hebrew writer mentions several things to keep these Christians on the right track and not let them be drawn away with false doctrine. In verse seven, he says, remember your leaders who have taught you the word of God and consider the outcome of their lives and imitate their faith. Be like those who taught you the truth to begin with. And then in verse eight, Jesus doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today and forever. Don't be carried about with strange and diverse teachings. It's good for your heart to be established with grace and not with foods because other people who have tried to do that haven't profited themselves. We have an altar which those that serve in the tabernacle have no right to eat from. Remember, these Christians are being tempted to go back to the old law. And he says, remember, after you get your life right, funnel everything back into the doctrine that you've learned and received and hold firm to it. Consider others that are doing the right thing. That's verse seven. Find good examples. The leaders, probably speaking of the elders that he mentions again in verse 17, those that have the rule over you follow their pattern and their instruction. Do you remember who taught you the gospel? You know, of good Christian examples, you've had parents and grandparents and elders and Bible class teachers. He's saying, remember their example. In verse eight, he says, Jesus doesn't change. Malachi three and verse six, God says, I'm the Lord. I change not. And therefore, you sons of Israel are not consumed. And no wonder, he says in verse nine, when you hear strange and funny things, don't fall for it because Jesus is the same. And so is his doctrine. And so hold fast to those things and don't give in to error. These Christians needed to remember what they had been taught and not turn loose of it to hold fast and press toward the goal. As they're being persecuted for their faith, he's saying your faith is still worth being held on to. 
Sometimes a person is raised in the church. They know these things. They know what they should believe. And then later on in life, things just start to slip. The Hebrew writer saying, don't let them drift away. Hold firmly to what you've been taught. Remember the truth of the gospel Own your faith and make it your own. And live like God would have you to live. Unless your memory is as good as Rebecca's. You sometimes need to be reminded, don't you? He ends this letter in Hebrews 13 and verse 22 by saying, receive these exhortations and make these things a part of your normal life. I heard this week about a man named David Brooks. He sometimes writes for The New York Times. He said there are really two types of virtues. He says there are resume virtues and then there are eulogy virtues. Resume virtues are the things that our society prizes while people are alive, where you went to school, how many degrees you have, what you do for a living, how much money you make and where you're from. But he said, you know what, I've I've been to a lot of funerals and somehow when people are dead, when we get to the funerals, all of the stuff that we were told that really mattered in life, all of the resume virtues are sort of switched out. And when I go to funerals, all I hear about are eulogy virtues. This man loved his family. He didn't let money get the best of him. She loved her church family and she extended herself for other individuals. He said it's as if in an instant the things that people think matter fade away and we get our priorities in order. Hebrews 13 is saying one day your life is going to come to an end and eulogy virtues will then mean far more than resume virtues ever did. In the Jesus is the ultimate reminder of righteousness. He's the one that loved us as brothers even when we were enemies. He's the one that showed us hospitality and invites us to sit at his table with him. He not only remembers those that are suffering, but he enters our suffering and becomes a sin sacrifice for us. And he says, in Christ, there's this great marriage between me and the church and I'll hold it in honor. I want you to do the same. He says, I'll never leave you and nor abandon you. You have nothing to fear. And he not only tells us about the truth, but John 14 and verse six, he says, when you look at me through the eyes of faith in scripture, I am the truth. Maybe somebody today wants to receive heaven's hospitality. There is a great wedding banquet to come. Revelation 19 says, blessed are those that will take part in that feast. And God has set the table and prepared it. Jesus has died for the sins of humanity. And if you believe that he is the Christ and are ready to repent and be immersed, we'd be happy to do that today or be able to help you in that regard. If we can study with you and further instruct you in the things that we find in the New Testament that would help to put you in God's family, we'd be happy to do that. In this lesson, we mentioned those that are suffering. And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you need the prayers of your brothers and sisters. Maybe life seems to be getting the best of you. We want you to know you don't have to bear your burdens alone. This invitation is for you as well. We're going to be letting the song to encourage us. If you need to respond, come now as together we stand and as we sing.